So we are in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32 is what we'll be on today. <coughs> Excuse me. And so if you would turn there, I'm going to read just verse 32, but we'll end up going through all verses 11 through 32 together. So I'll read just verse 32, and then I'll pray, and we'll dive in uh, together, okay? Luke chapter 15. Verse 32, the Word of God says this, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is now alive, he was lost and is found. Let's pray. Father, we ask that the result of our time together would be a heart that falls in love with you and is given the freedom to rejoice, to rejoice in what you rejoice in, to, be, to love what you love and to hate what you hate and to find a sense of peace and satisfaction in your loving arms. Father, I pray, I pray that you would help us to see your heart today. That you would um, make us humble enough to listen and make us attentive enough that, God, you would change us from the inside out on the spot in this moment. And so, Father, we pray that uh, you would do a great work on the heart that we might uh, surrender wholly to your great love. Thanks for overcoming all of our struggles, all of our deficiencies, and we lean on you now to continue that gracious work. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Yesterday morning was a day like none other. Overcast skies, 40 men from Treasuring Christ Church descended upon East Gate Park in North Raleigh, staring out at the immense field with cones all around, many believing that they were more in shape than they really were. And we stand there beholding flag football. Treasuring Christ Church's annual flag football event was yesterday. And as we stood there, uh, we had four teams. Some teams had more people on it than others. And what was able to be uh, beheld in that moment was just all these men just ready to win and to go after it. And realizing about two plays in that they didn't quite have what they thought they had. And so... It was, it was at this moment when after my team had lost two games, <laughs> its first two, uh, we completely uh, lost those. And so as we approach our third game, here is what we are told. We're told that even if we win our game, it doesn't matter. <laughs> we're that bad. And we look over at our sideline and it looked like we had been in war. Out of eight players that we had, we had three that could not move. They were sitting there with cramps in their toes, cramps in their calves. They, one had a Charlie horse literally that occurred on play two of the entire day and was out for the rest of the day. So if you get the picture, we're playing six on six. Last I did my math, eight minus three is five, okay? 
So we were still facing this last game, told that it doesn't matter. They were even debating on whether we would play it or not because they thought it was a shoe-in, and we said no. We're going after it. So we recruited a 14-year-old that was standing on the sidelines, and we began to play what turned out to be our best game ever. And so the question you might ask is why? Why did you go out there and play? Most of you would say, because you're stupid. And I would say, no, it was not stupidity. It was because we had heart. There was heart in these men. There was heart. Now, I don't know what was in the heart. What was probably in the heart was just, I don't want to look stupid and giving up. Or, But it was, maybe it was, I just want to win. I want to be together as a team. We want to finish strong. Whatever it was, those men, they had heart. And you would have been proud of them. We still lost that game. (laughs) However, what was in the heart led to their actions, and that's exactly what Jesus wants to teach us today. What's in the heart leads to what you do. What was in the heart of those men, desire to play, desire to be on a team, desire to win, it led to them pushing past some of the pain to keep going. And now what we look at in the scriptures are three different lives whose hearts are revealed. And the revelation of their heart leads to certain actions. And what we have in the scriptures are three types of hearts that are laid out here. Two hearts of the sinner. It is the heart of the rebellious and the heart of the religious. But then we're ushered into a totally different heart altogether. It's the heart of the Father. And it's the heart of lavish love. And so we're invited into in this story to look at three hearts. And to really ask ourselves, what's in our heart? Because the heart that we are closest to will affect how we live. And how we love will affect our allegiances and our sacrifice. So let's dive in here. In Luke chapter 15, this is the third story of three stories. If you jump in at Luke 15 verse 1, here's what it says. Verse 1 in chapter 15 says, Now the tax collector and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And now Jesus tells three stories to address these Pharisees who are looking in at a Savior who receives sinners, and they don't like it one bit. What they were missing is the fact that although when God collides with sinful hearts, it does make you distinct and different from the world. But what they were missing is that you are made distinct not only from the world, but for the world. You're made different so that you could be an instrument in the Lord's hands to look different and that you're a different life of love to reach those who are broken and hurting and sinful. The Pharisees missed it altogether. They just were distinct from the world, trying to live holy lives and tried to promote the fact of how separate they really were without being instruments of love into sinners' lives. And so Jesus tells three stories to address them. And the one lesson in all three stories is this. There is joy in the Father's heart when a sinner 
repents. There is joy in a father's heart when a sinner repents. He tells story number one. Shepherd has a bunch of sheep. One runs away. He leaves the 99 to go get the sheep. What does it teach us? It teaches us the caring pursuit of the father. Because there is joy in the father's heart when a sinner repents. And so he pursues caringly. Second story. A woman loses a coin. Probably uh, a, a large portion of her livelihood. And so what does she do? It says in the text that there was a diligent pursuit looking for the coin. Basically left no stone unturned. Why was that? Because our Savior pursues diligently those who do not love Jesus. Why? Because there's joy in the Father's heart when a sinner repents. And now we're thrust into a third story. A third story, not over a lost sheep or a lost coin, but over a lost son. And the message that we get today is there is joy in the Father's heart when a sinner repents. Can you say that with me? I don't know if you can or not because it's not written. Do you got it here? There is joy in the Father's heart when a sinner repents. That's right. And so he teaches us that by showing us a relationship between two brothers and their relationship with their father. And he exposes three types of hearts. The heart of the rebellious, the heart of the religious, and the heart of the father. The heart of lavish love. So let's look at the heart of the rebellious. We begin in verse 11 of chapter 15 where Jesus speaks. Verse 11, and he said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share that is coming. Give me the share of property that is coming to me. And the father divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. The younger son characterizes a heart of rebellion and what is always at the core of a heart of rebellion is a heart of rejection rejection where do I get this idea of rejection because you've got to understand his request verse 12 when he speaks to his father and says father Give me the share of my property. Give me my inheritance is what he's saying. When should somebody get their inheritance? When who dies? The father or the parents, right? So what he is technically saying is the money that I'm about to get is more important to me than you to the degree that I'm treating you as if I would rather you be dead. You get the picture? And you might say, no, 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 no. He's just saying, and this might be what the son would say, 
I don't wish my father were dead. I love him. I just want what I want when I want it. And this is the first spiritual lesson that I think is for us here in these moments. Is that anytime a heart says, I want what I want when I want it. It is a heart that is communicating. Father, I don't trust you. And Father, I prize these things more than you. That's what we're saying. Whenever we are demanding, whenever we are insisting, whenever we try to take control of our own lives and make sure things go our own way, rather than the heart of surrender and the heart that says, I'll obey whatever you ask and I'll accept whatever you give. Until that happens, what we are saying is, I love what I want more than I love you. And I don't trust you to give me what I need when I need it. That's exactly what the younger son was doing. It is the rejection of the father is at the core of rebellion. Rebellion is not first the breaking of rules, but you might think of it as the breaking of a heart. It's not breaking rules. It's rejecting the father. That's sin. It is saying, I prize X. I prize this relationship. I prize this money. I prize this status. I prize this, these kids. I prize this whatever more than you. And so the son says, I prize these things more than you. The father has to sell his property. And basically, when there's two children, the older son would get two-thirds and he would get a third So he got his third, and not many days later, the father not only lost part of his property, but he lost his son, and his son runs away. Now, I began to ask, what in the world would lead a son to reject his father like this? Why would he do that? Well, the Bible actually tells us. Why do the people or the children of God reject God as father? Why do do they do that? Well, it's either because they don't know him or they forget him. They don't know him or they forget him. John chapter 16 verse 3, speaking of a bunch of people who are rebelling against God, Jesus' summary statement about their heart was this, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. Jesus says the reason they rebelled, the reason they abandoned God, the reason they were hurting people was because they have not known the Father nor me. But sometimes it's not just a knowledge thing. Sometimes it's not just that they haven't known the love of the Father. Sometimes it's they have forgotten. And that's the storyline all through the early parts of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The whole first part of the Bible is a storyline of God's great love for the people. I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. He couldn't say it in more ways. They were in slavery and he delivered them. He parts the Red Sea. He gives water out of rocks. He pours down manna so they got food when they didn't have it. It was plenty That he was doing to communicate his merciful love. And yet when you get to the punchline in the book of Deuteronomy. And Moses preaches his last sermon. 
He not only talks about how lovely and wonderful his God is, he also says this, Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 9, only take care and keep your soul diligently lest you forget. Lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Moses was pleading, don't forget God. Why was that the message? Because it's easy. It's easy for us to get enamored with other things to go after other things and God becomes a distant memory. And so he says, don't forget, be diligent. It's going to take work. Do you get that? Take care of your soul. It's not going to come easy and you need to tell it from generation to generation because that'll cement it here and it'll cement it in further generations that God is merciful and lovely and wonderful and he is worth giving your heart to. He says it just a few verses later in the same chapter of Deuteronomy 4.23. Take care. Lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you. And if you forget the covenant, then you'll make a carved image. The form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He won't leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers. He loves you. Don't forget him. You get the message? But then at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, God tells Moses to sing a song. Sing a song and make sure it's a song that's memorable. Because my people need to remember how much I love them. And they need to know that I know they're going to forget me. And the song goes like this in Deuteronomy 32 verses 9, 10, and 15 are just some summary points. It says this, But the Lord's portion is his people. He found them in a desert land. He encircled them. He cared for them. He kept them as the apple of his eye. He loves you. That's what he wants to be flowing out of your mouth. That's why we sing, our God loves you. But then there could not be a greater contrast when you get to verse 15. And it says, But his people grew fat and kicked. You are fat, stout, and sleek. And then he forsook God who made him. Why does he use the image of obesity? Because you don't become obese overnight. It happens slowly and imperceptibly. And you don't forget God overnight. It happens slowly and imperceptibly many times. And I have found this to be true in my own heart. That there are times when I grow distant from the Bible. You've been there? And then I dive back into the Bible only to find that it really doesn't do something for me. Have you been there? You read it and it's hard to get something out of it. So then I'm at a crisis. Do I stick with it, which is hard, or do I just go on about my day? And sometimes, sadly, it's too hard. It's not easy. It doesn't bring peace right away. So I go on about my day. 
only to reinforce the cycle, right? It doesn't get easier. The more distant I get, the more confident I get in me. The more confident I get in my wisdom, my strength, my ability. And so the less that I go into the Word. And when I go to the Word, then I wonder why God feels distant. But I blame Him. Slowly, moment by moment, I get more confident in me and less confident in Him. And this is exactly what we begin to see with the younger brother. And that cycle will perpetuate itself over and over and over until. Until the famine comes. Isn't that what happened here? The younger brother sold everything he had, or got all the uh, inheritance, and he took off. Took off to a faraway land. It said he squandered it when reckless living. He was living it up. He was perfectly fine the way he was. He was happy. No problems. But he didn't count on the famine. How many things have there been that we have not counted on? We didn't count on that unexpected bill. That all of a sudden, we're financially hurt. We did not count on that sickness to come. We did not count on that criticism. We didn't count on the plans to change. We didn't count on the kid to lie to us and have been lying for a while. We didn't count on the marriage to be hard. We didn't count on losing our job or being told our career path is a dead end. We didn't count on that. And famine comes. And although it is painful and hard and sad and God grieves with you, I want you to hear this. The famine was a gift. The famine was a gift. Because were it not for the famine, this young buck would have kept going. If it weren't for the loss of money, he would have kept going. Your financial problems many times are a gift because it forces you. It forces you to make time for what is important, to reevaluate where you are, and to call out to your Almighty God because you are now convinced of your need. Famine was a gift. May we not forget our great God. May we not give ourselves to the heart of rebellion. And I don't know if you've read or have thought about this, but why did, why did the father do it? Why, why did the father do what the son asked? Why didn't he just say, buzz off, kid? You're being a jerk. You're wishing I would die, and you're prizing these things more than me. Why did he do it? Because a good father knows this. One is that he will always love his son. And two, some things have to be learned through difficulty. Many times you're not convinced of your sin just by me saying, hey, you're a sinner. You got issues. Many times I'm not convinced of my sin when you say, hey, Sean, you're a sinner. You got issues. Sometimes we have to be convinced through experience. 
And so we sleep in the bed we make. The Lord allows us to walk in our own path and in our own ways. Never stopping to love. But allowing us to be convinced we're sinners in need of a Savior. And what happened? The son got convinced, didn't he? He lost all that he had. Squandered it away in reckless living. And now what we begin to see is that he is feeding the pigs, wishing he could eat the mess that they're eating. And it says, no one gave him anything. This is the consequence of sin, is loneliness. You are alone. Parents, when you are instructing your kids, your kid needs to know there are consequences to bad behavior. God uses things that create a sense of fear and pain as a consequence to bad behavior. But other times, it's loneliness because sin and selfishness separates us and creates us to be alone or makes us alone. So how in the world do we respond to that? I'm not one of those parents that can't stand time out. I just think you should tell them why in the world they're in time out. Because sin separates you. It separates you from all that is good. And parents, if you're only critiquing behavior, you're missing the heart of the Father. It is, yes, you did this, and yes, there has to be a consequence, but I will not stop loving you. And yes, sin and selfishness leads to isolation, and it means that sometimes you will have to be alone, but I promise you this, I will always be here. Draw them into your arms after a sufficient amount of time and you tell them of the Father's love. This is what the Father does. This is what the Father does even in the midst of this son experiencing loneliness. Because we read here, what? Verse 17. But when the younger son came to himself, that is code word for beginning to be stirred upon in the heart. Something's happening in here. He came to himself and he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go where? Where does he go? To his father. When he is in desperate need, he goes to his father. That's exactly where we go. But he didn't know what to expect because here's what he was thinking would happen. He had it all mapped out. Here was his spiel, his speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Just take a note. Our sin is not only against others. It's always against God too. I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against my earthly father. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He expected to be treated as lowly. But he thought, heck, at least I'll have a roof over my head and I'll have food to eat. Is that how the father treated him? No. So what we begin to see is this. Verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, ran, embraced, kissed him. And the son said to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he still got one more line. Treat me as your servant, right? Father doesn't let that line get out. The father says, Quickly, bring the best robe. 
Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand. Shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf. Kill it. Let's eat and let's celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to throw a party. That's my paraphrase. Why? Because what was once dead is now alive. What was once lost is now found. Why does he use these two images? Well, let's chew on it a second. This is... It's what you have to do with the word for something to come out of it. You've got to think on it longer than just reading words. Ask yourself, why did he use dead to life and lost to found? Why would he do it? Well, let's just take one of the words, dead. What, is, what does death bring to mind? Tragedy. Loss. Sadness. It's something that you don't want to happen, right? Okay. And yet... Now, death has been overcome and life has been given. It's a picture of resurrection can happen even for this heart of rebellion. What about lost and found? When you're lost, lights out. When you're lost, it's scary, isn't it? That that wasn't planned. (laughs) When you're lost... It's scary. I mean, many of us, when we were kids, you have pretty much two consistent bad dreams. It is that, one, you'll get lost, and two, you have to make some speech, and you end up realizing you're in your underwear or something. You know, it's, it's, these are the two paths that it goes down. And so, why is being lost so damaging or so frightening? Because you don't know where you are, you're disoriented, you're helpless. So just take this image. Say a dad and a daughter, they go out to a mall together. And the dad has enough foresight that when they walk into this store, they say, he says, honey, if you ever get lost, I want you to come right here to this desk and your dad will find you. But always stay right here with me. Stay right here with me. Now let's go and enjoy. So they're walking all through the store and all of a sudden, The dad has had to say several times, hey, come over here. Don't stray away. Don't stray away. Well, let's just say one time the dad was a little too invested. And the girl got a little too invested with what was over there in the store. And she runs off and only to find that now they're separated. And she's in the midst of these clothes that she loved and looks around and can't see her father. And she begins to weep. And she begins to cry and she sits down. Why would she do something like that? Because she's helpless. And she feels that she is all alone. It is a horrible feeling to feel like you're all alone. And then she remembers. My dad said, if I would go to that desk, He would find me. And so there's a little bit of a ray of hope in the midst of the tears. And she gets up and she runs. After getting a little bit of orientation, she runs to that desk. And who does she see standing at that desk? She sees her father. And her father doesn't say, What in the world were you doing? Father picks her up. Holds her. Says, Honey, I'm right here. I'm right here. He says, see, I told you, stay right next to me. 
It's a scary thing to be away from you. This is what the Father does. Because lostness is tragic. But being found is what is the craving of every human heart. And that's why Jesus sent His Son. So that there is joy when sinners repent. There's joy in the Father's heart so that sinners can find peace with Him. So the call is surrender. Heart that is rebellious, surrender. And say, I will obey whatever you ask. I will accept whatever you give. Surrender, because there is joy in the Father's heart when a sinner repents. But the second heart we begin to see with just a few verses in the last of the story. Look at verse 25. This is the heart of religion. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and asked, what in the world is going on? And he said to him, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back and safe and sound. But the son was angry and refused to go in. What did that older son hear? When the servant talked to him. What was he most focused on? The fattened calf, right? <laughs> Did you follow the, the line? Your brother has come. He's safe and sound. Your dad killed the fattened calf for him. What did he do that for? All of a sudden you begin to have exposed the heart of religion. There are four things that I think we can see here from the heart of religion. And it begins with this. It's that the heart of religion cannot rejoice over forgiveness. It's when you find yourself judging faults more than celebrating grace. Have you been there? Find yourself judging or focusing on people's faults more than you do celebrating the grace of God in them. It, there's no way that you can't acknowledge some difficulties and some people doing wrong things. You have to do it. But what is your heart's bent? Are you bent more towards complaining? Are you bent more towards just what people are not doing? Rather than what God has done, this is what He is doing. He was focused on not the Son coming back, but focused on why in the world did... Dad, do that for him and not me, which leads to the second part. They can't rejoice in the Father's generosity unless it's coming to them. So I'm fine for Dad to be generous if it's mine, but not if he gives it to somebody else, because I deserve it. That's what the heart of religion says. He or she does not. The summary would be jealousy. The heart gets jealous. Oh, I wish I could have an easy pass and get the fatted calf, for crying out loud. And this leads to the third point. The heart of religion talks and thinks more about what you have done rather than what's been done for you. And where do I get that? Because the older brother is angry and refused to go in. He pouts, okay? All of you, including myself, have had a pouting moment. Yes? This was his pouting moment. And dad comes out and says, please, stop pouting. No, he didn't say that. He says, come on in. You're missing the party. I want you to come in. 
And what does the young older brother say? He says, verse 29, Look, these many years I have served you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, uh, he's your brother too, but, but when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. The heart of religion focuses more on what you have done than what's been done for you. He never said, Dad, thanks for taking care of me all these years. Thanks for commanding me and training me up and raising me right. Thanks for being my father. None of that came out of his mouth. It was, look at what I've done. My record is spotless. I deserve something. I can't tell you how many times my heart can go more to what I have done than what God has done for me. But for me, it's a little different. When I have to focus on, when I focus on what I have done, it's because I'm wanting affirmation from others, not believing the affirmation that I have in Jesus is enough. So I feel like I have to be perfect. I went away this past week, uh, last week, uh, to San Diego, suffering for Jesus, right? So I went to San Diego to we're a part of a church planting network called the Treasuring Christ Together Church Planting Network. There's um, almost uh, 20, there's 25 churches right now, and by the end of the year, there'll be over 30 churches that are part of the network. So we had almost 80 pastors and their wives that were a part of this uh, retreat that we did that I helped lead with Craig Priestley. Um, and so we went and did this retreat, and while we were out there, uh, we had a few pastors share. And one pastor, his name is Brett Lewis, he's uh, the lead pastor of Christ Redeemer in Woodbury, which is St. Paul area, Minnesota. And he shared, and he shared about his desire to be seen as perfect, his desire to focus on what he could do because he wanted people's approval. And as he shared this, I saw so much of myself. But he made a couple of statements that I felt were striking. One, he said this. He said, I can hide behind all kinds of good things just so that people won't know how deficient I really am. He said, I could hide behind a good sermon. I can hide behind good deeds. I could hide behind good money management. I can hide behind all kinds of good things so that people won't know the real me. And he said, it all came crashing in on me when... I looked up to my dad, he said. And my dad, I really thought he was perfect. That he didn't have any faults. He didn't do anything wrong. And there was one day when I was up to bat. He was a baseball player. He says, one day when I was up to bat and I saw my dad behind the uh, backstop. And he was looking on. My dad hadn't been there the whole game. He shows up, stares at me batting. And my friend said, and I struck out. And he said, I'll never forget what I saw my dad do next. My dad looked, and he dropped his head, and he walked off. And he didn't stay for the rest of the game. And my friend said, for the rest of my life, I've been trying to be perfect so that somebody would accept me. My dad would accept me. 
That's the heart of religion. Deep down underneath all of the desire to be perfect, deep down underneath all of the self-righteousness and the judging is a heart that is hurting to be accepted. And you're just convinced that by doing good things or by being better than your neighbor, you can get it. And I want you to know that at this point, at this point right here is when we need to see the third heart. Because every single person in this room is guilty. You're guilty at times of a heart of rebellion and you're guilty at times of a heart of religion. And you're longing to see someone who loves you. You're longing for someone to say, I accept you and I care for you. And you might say, yeah, I know God loves me. And I would say, no, you don't. Because if you did, your life would be lived completely differently. And I say it to myself. If I were convinced of the love of God for me, my life would be completely different. How would you live if you really believed God loved you? I just stopped. As I was in this part of the sermon, I just stopped. And I began to focus. And I, I began to say, God, I forget you at times. That's me. I forget you at times. And I began to look at these things or do these things. Just begin to distance myself from you. God, help my heart. I don't want to do that. And I began to lean on my own good deeds in order as my measure of acceptance. I do that. And I begin to ask. I said, God, please change my heart. What do I need in that moment of weakness and neediness? What do I need? I need to see and I need to believe. I need to be convinced of the love of God for me. This is why in 1 John chapter 14 or 4 verse 16 it says this So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us That is the aim of the Christian we must know and believe the love that God has for us and here's the picture of the love let's hit rewind on the story what does the father do when his sinful, wretched son decides to come home? What does he do? Here's what he does. Look at verse 20. The son arose and came to the father, but while he was a long way off, his father saw him. That means his father was looking for him. And then his father felt compassion, not anger. Love, affection, I want you with me, not I'm frustrated with you. And then it says that the father ran. In that culture, it was extremely undignified for an older gentleman to run. Ultimately, they had long clothes. They had to pull up the clothes so that the legs would even move. You can imagine this older guy hiking up his skirt kind of thing and running. It is like culturally weird. It was like, why are you doing this? And have you ever had those moments where you just really did not care who saw you in that moment? You were there to either celebrate or to weep. You were just at a point of elation or sadness. 
It could be at a game where you were just like, whoa, you know, you're just screaming. You don't care who sees you. You're high-fiving people you've never even seen in your life. There's this sense of elation. You don't care who's around. Or you've had those moments of sadness where it was so intense and it was so raw and it was so deep and you just wept. And this father was so filled with love that he didn't give a rip who was around. He was running after his kid. Is that how you know the love of God for you? Because then the father, when he gets near to the son, it says that he embraced him. That's a calm word. What it literally says is he fell on his son's neck. He just buries his head into his son's neck with this full embrace. And the father kissed him. And there's almost this sense that the son doesn't know what to do with this lavish affection. And that's how we are. We don't know what to do when he pours out his love in great measure and says, I want you with me. So the son begins to talk. Father, I've, I've sinned. I've sinned against heaven and against you. And I know I can't be your son. And the father won't even let him finish his sentence. He says, hey, bring a robe. Which shows I care for you. And then he says, put on a ring, which says, you are in the family. Stop this servant business, you're a son. And then he says, put on a shoes, which means, I'm providing for you. I care for you. And then he says, kill the fatted calf, which is about a half year's wage. And he says, I'm going all out. I will spare no expense. I'm not going cheap. My love is lavish and full. And now let's celebrate. Let's eat together. Let's be together because being with me is enough. And just like you don't know your sin many times until you have to experience the depth of your sin and you are convinced of it by your life, sometimes you don't know the love of God until you experience it. And that means, yes, that some of you go through trials that you wish you never had to go through and experience pain like you've never gone through only to be met by a Father who loves you. A God who never abandoned you. One who has comfort deeper than you ever thought possible. One who provided family and friends who could come alongside you and be the, his hands and feet. One who gives you a word that always proves true. And one who gave his only son to prove that he would go to the nth degree to say, I love you. Amen. He loves you with a lavish love and we need to get near to the heart. Of God. How do we know his heart? Because he sacrificed it all for us. Do you know what it meant for him to give up his property for his son? It was social suicide. It showed that you didn't have control over your family and your property was part of your identity. He had to go and liquidate part of his assets to say, My son's a wreck, so I can give him his due. He sacrificed. And our great God in heaven gave his only son as a sacrifice because he knew that we would realize our helplessness one day and we needed an answer for sin and he needed to be just and so he punished our sin on the perfect son, his son, Jesus Christ, who died the death that we deserved and three days later, after being buried in a cold tomb, he was raised so that anyone who would 
repent of their sins, would come and see the joy of the Father's heart for them. Some of you are afraid. You're afraid. You're afraid, and you're the younger brother. You're afraid to admit that you don't know it all. You're afraid to say, Father, I'm going to trust you even though I don't understand it. You're afraid to surrender all of your life because you don't know what's on the other side of that door. And he invites you in and he says, open the door and surrender all that you are to me. Obey whatever I ask of you, accept whatever I give you, surrender, but you're afraid. You're afraid to open the door because you believe when you get through the door, you're just going to free fall and nobody's going to catch you. And so you're like, I'm not going through that mess. I'll just try to take care of my life myself. The famine will come, friends. It will come. And I invite you into the joy of the Father's heart because I promise you this. When the door opens and you say, I am a sinner and I don't have it all figured out and I am a needy mess and I've been trying to live on my own in my own wisdom and my own power and I've been choosing all of these things for my own sake. Father, I need you. When that door is opened, I promise on the other side, you will find a loving father who is rejoicing over you. He rejoices over you. And you will not free fall. You will fall into the loving arms of your Father who will only do good to you even if you don't understand what that good is. Obey, obey all that He has for you and accept all that He gives you because He is a loving Father. And so we end. When the older son is answered, Jesus says this, Son, verse 31, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Those are the two greatest things that he could say to us. Sinner, who shouldn't be near me at all, you're with me, and all that is mine is yours, and that's enough. And so he says, it's fitting. It's fitting to celebrate. The fact that a sinner has turned and come to me. Because there is joy in the Father's heart when a sinner repents. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would protect us from coldness. You would protect us from indifference. You would protect us from forgetting. And you would allow us to see in this moment where our hearts are shackled by the heart of rebellion, where our hearts are tainted by the heart of religion. And I pray, O God, that we would then be thrust out of the famine into your arms, that we would call out for you. We would confess our neediness. And Father, you would help us to see the heart of lavish love that you have for us more than we see our own failures and inadequacies. Father, I pray for those who don't see themselves as inadequate, who see themselves as solely sufficient. Father, I pray that you would turn them before they fall too far. I pray that you would cause people to throw themselves at your feet and believe 
that you are a loving father and you proved it by giving your only son. When the world seems to be broken and we feel like there's very little to celebrate, we can always celebrate your lavish love for us proven at the cross. The cross is always worth celebrating over. And so, Father, I just pray. I pray that with the hymn, we would say, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. So, Father, I pray that the ripple effects throughout this room would be hearts of surrender, hearts that know and believe the love that you have for us. And out of that conviction, there would be boldness like we've never seen. There would be risk like we've never seen. There would be sacrifice like we've never seen. There would be love that goes to the ends of the earth. There would be teenagers who are dreaming about how to use their lives for your namesake, how to choose occupations for your namesake. Father, there would be adults who are pursuing Christ and laying their life down for neighbor, for family, for friends. Father, the gospel would be on our lips because we are convinced of your love for us. Father, please, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Father, set us free and convince us that you're characterized by joy. And so I pray for every single person in this room right now that they would experience the joy and refreshment that comes from confession. And that, Father, you would overwhelm them with your love.